0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground.
1: Welcome everyone. So we're beginning another topic tonight. Probably stay with it for three or four weeks. Maybe all the way up until the holidays. And this is, uh, relates to Chapter 16 in Jack Kornfield's book, *The Wise Heart*, and the title of the chapter is "Suffering and Letting Go." And as you probably have heard, it's almost a joke about Buddhism and suffering, always associating that you know Buddhism has some kind of obsession, maybe morbid obsession, with suffering. But of course. The point is that it's the not understanding suffering, this is a paraphrase of how the Buddha taught, it's the not understanding suffering that is the cause for suffering in life. So for however long we've avoided being interested in it, taking it up as a relevant fact of life, one of our most important teachers, it's the not doing that that causes... The heart, the mind, to misunderstand. It's as if our basic strategy to suffering is to pretend that it's not true. I mean, if we say it like that, it seems absurd. <clears throat> you know, we would never counsel our daughter or son or some person younger than us asking us for advice. We'd never counsel them, oh, you want to be happy in life? Pretend that you are, you know, or pretend that the difficulties aren't difficult. Don't pay any attention. And Joseph Goldstein, one of my teachers, tells a funny story that he heard from a friend of his who was alive on uh, the day that Pearl Harbor was bombed. And they were, he was driving with his dad, and, and they were, had the radio on, and they, they hear the news report, you know, that Pearl Harbor had been bombed, at the beginning of World War II, and First thing out of his dad's mouth is don't tell your mom (laughs) somehow they'd be able to cover up the fact that there's a (laughs) war going on (laughs) but this is often our approach and partly it's understandable because when we have open to suffering when we have even like in a sit and we're feeling a lot of pain And we open to it, and all, of, all, all that happens is we get thrown around by it. The mind reacts to the pain, and we're in this, this sort of micro-war with the painful sensations in the body. And then we, you know, then we have a moment of mindfulness, and we go, well, this isn't working. So it seems so much more useful to get lost in a fantasy or to somehow pretend that the knee doesn't hurt. Or we, you know, we take up the mindfulness of breathing with a vengeance. Like, put my attention there so I can be more and more oblivious to the pain in my knee. But this path is really a path of opening, awakening to the way that it is. So even though we do have instructions that say something like, we'll bring the attention back to the breath, connect with the breath, sustain attention with the breath, or some other meditation object, Those are just preliminary instructions to help support the mind settling down balancing Becoming stable so that ultimately we don't have to pick and choose Awareness is willing to receive to know whatever it is that's arising whatever is loud and clear including pain I mean imagine if we practice in daily life like we practice in meditation, you know partner is leaving us and we go, I'm sure I can't pay attention to this because you know, I'm supposed to be with my walking or I'm supposed to be aware of breathing or... No, we naturally, appropriately have to show up to whatever's happening. So if our formal meditation practice is going to support us in life it has to support this capacity to show up with whatever's happening. Whether it's really beautiful and pleasant, really... Not so beautiful, painful, unpleasant. Some of you know already that uh, the Buddha, after his deep insight, after years of practice, he had a deep insight, sort of been mythologized, what do you call that? Made into a myth, whatever that word would be made into a myth this time under the Bodhi tree, this tree. Now it's called the Tree of Awakening, I think related to the fig tree, one of those big trees that create a lot of shade. And it was often the the place where uh, ascetics would practice. And the Buddha had left behind some of his um, colleagues in the ascetic life. Actually, they left him behind because he somehow finally, after years of extreme ascetic practices, decided that asceticism itself wasn't leading to any deep insights. So he started to eat regular food, more balanced approach. And his colleagues thought he was getting soft, so they left him. So he was by himself. He had this deep insight. And after sort of integrating it, He decided he tried to share it with other people maybe it would be useful for other people and he remembered of course his colleagues and he decided to track them down and after a while he found them somewhere near Varanasi in India and uh, when they saw him from a distance they thought well you know we're not going to deal with this guy because he's soft you know he's not into asceticism anymore he's become a worldly fool But as he got closer, they noticed something about the way the Buddha looked. And they thought, he's looking pretty good, (laughs) pretty relaxed, pretty clear, pretty shiny. Maybe maybe we'll see what he has to say. And the Buddha gave this talk. It's called, Setting the Wheel of Dhamma in Motion. It's the first Dharma talk given by the Buddha after his awakening. And uh, it's special because up until that point, The Buddha didn't know whether or not, didn't know that the insight that he had would be useful for other people, that somehow other people could have that same insight. And so, after this talk, one of the five fellow colleagues, practitioners of his, uh, got it, had the sort of opening that the Buddha had, or similar opening that the Buddha had. So that's why this talk is called setting the wheel of Dhamma in motion, setting the wheel of awakening in motion so that it isn't specific to one person who just happened you know, to have the right supporting circumstances to see something about the nature of the mind, but that anybody given enough support could have the same insight. And what the Buddha taught, he taught what we often relate to the, uh, Buddhism, which is... This teaching of the middle way although not always understood so the Buddha had to explain that not only is a life pursuing sensual experience not going to lead to real lasting happiness but also a life dedicated to avoiding life's comforts you know pushing away pleasant experience a life of asceticism also is not going to lead to lasting happiness So initially, that's what the Buddha meant by the middle way. Don't think that dedicating your life to being as competent as you can be to maintaining your health, maintaining your wealth, maintaining your good friendships, as good as these things might be. There's nothing wrong with having wealth. There's certainly nothing wrong with having good health and good friends, right? But if we think that... Putting all of our energy in this direction is going to somehow magically lead to lasting happiness. We're just not paying attention. How could anything like friendship, like health, like wealth take care of us forever in this world that inevitably, this life that inevitably falls apart? And rejecting friendships and health and wealth and any other aspects of what we call worldly existence, you know, well, that's just a life of negativity, you know. Food is bad. Sex is bad. You know, money is bad. What makes the world bad is the mind that's relating to it, you know. Food is neither good nor bad. Sex is neither good nor bad. Money is neither good nor bad. But if, I'm a, if a lot of greed comes up for me around money, well, the greediness, clearly, that's bad because it hurts. You know, when I'm really greedy, I know directly, in my own experience, that that's bad or unskillful. I guess we'd say it's more politically correct instead of evil. We say it's unskillful, unwholesome. <laughs> but we know what we mean. You know, it's like that's not the way. Being attached, being greedy. Being fearful isn't the way. So this is the middle way. And then I'll just read a little bit from this discourse. This, is in Asian countries, Buddhist countries there, where Buddhism is still sort of the part of the culture, this particular discourse is considered um, a real protection. And it's said that all the, you know, in terms of Buddhist cosmology, all the angelic beings, all the celestial beings. They like it when human beings chant the setting the wheel of Dhamma in motion. I once took a retreat with a Burmese nun, a very famous Burmese nun. Sister Dipakara is her name. And she's quite a powerhouse practitioner. And uh, she would talk about chanting this for all the celestial beings and having a lot of joy in doing that. So anyway... The way this goes the first thing he talks about is the middle way as i just described then he goes on and what is the middle way realized by the tathagata that word is just the word the buddha used to refer to himself that producing vision producing knowledge leads to calm to direct knowledge to self-awakening to unbinding precisely this noble eightfold path right view Right resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. This is the middle way realized by the Tathagata. That producing vision, producing knowledge leads to calm, to direct knowledge, to self awakening, to unbinding. This is Ajahn Tannisra's way of translating this awakening. He calls it. He translates it as unbinding, because the Buddha often used. Uh, suffering with the phrase entanglement, you know, the heart of the mind that's entangled. So we can think of that knot, that tight knot, being unbounded, released, untangled. It's, it makes it a little bit more visceral the the awakening process. Like the mind is bound up in its confusion in what we call wrong view, you know, not understanding things as they are. And through the process of wisdom and mindfulness, that entanglement releases. It makes sense. The entanglement is maintained through ignorance, through not seeing things as they are. When we cultivate clear seeing, then the entanglement doesn't have a chance. It will unwind. It will fall apart, leading to the unbinding. Now, this practitioner's is the noble truth of stress. So, after talking about the Eightfold Path, he goes through the four noble truths. Now, this practitioner's is the noble truth of stress, suffering. Birth is stressful, aging is stressful, death is stressful, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, despair are stressful. Association with the unbeloved, you know, things we don't like, is stressful. Separation from the loved, is stressful not getting what is wanted is stressful in short the five clinging aggregates are stressful or the another way of saying that is clinging to the mind or body is stressful that's the same thing and the second noble truth goes like this and this practitioners is the noble truth of the origination of stress the craving that makes for further becoming Accompanied by passion and delight, relishing now here, now there, for example, craving for sensuality, craving for becoming, and craving for non-becoming. And this practitioners is the noble truth of the cessation of stress, right? Happiness, the remainderless fading and cessation, cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release, and letting go of that very craving. So it's not about getting someplace like heaven that is the end of stress. It's the releasing, it's the untangling of the mind that's craving, of the mind that's bound up in aversion and craving and delusion. And this, practitioners, is the noble truth of the way, of practice leading to the cessation of stress, namely, or precisely, this eight, noble Eightfold Path, So that's what the Buddha said in his first talk he went on he talked a little bit more about each part of the four truths and these these four truths are meant to be a little bit like an Ayurvedic some of you know about Ayurveda the sort of ancient uh, medical system in India and um, you know they had a particular logical formula where you would examine or assess or get clear about how the disease, whatever the problem was, how it's expressing itself. That's the first noble truth. So as human beings, as an ordinary, unawakened human being, it's just like having an illness. Often in the tradition, they consider the Buddha the doctor. He's a doctor. You know, Normally, nowadays, we'd consider the Buddha a teacher. So in Buddhism, the Buddha is just a human being who happened to be a really good spiritual doctor. And what he did? As he said he sort of pointed his finger at what the problem is and he said the problem is stress or suffering or the unsatisfactoriness of existence and this he's not just pointing to knee pain because we don't always have knee pain he's pointing to dukkha or this suffering this stress that's pervasive meaning it's there even when things are going well Even when we're healthy, even when we're well-loved and we have enough food and a nice place to live, even there, on some level, we may not be conscious of it, but on some level we understand that it's insecure. However good we get it or have it at some point in our life, whether we know it or not, on some level we understand we can't hold on to it. It can change. So... Even at this very refined level, there's stress. There's the stress of knowing that this too will change. This is not permanent. So that's the first noble truth. And in that teaching, the Buddha said there are three insights. There are three ways to practice with this first noble truth. One is to realize that there is stress in life. And this is like an open-hearted acknowledgement. Instead of like wishing it weren't true, it's just this honest, self-honesty. Oh, there is stress in life. And the second is an insight. This is an insight, like an awakening, where we realize it's relevant. You know, it's not just a, a random occurrence or a pain in the butt, but... This insight that it's relevant is a recognition that the subtle and the obvious suffering in life, it's a relevant teacher. It's like another way of thinking that is it's a piece of the puzzle. Or the information embedded in discomfort and stress and dissatisfaction and existential angst and boredom and irritation the suffering or the distress involved in those things is essential information for freedom for the awakening process it's like it's a key that unlocks the awakening process without appreciating it as a teacher we we can't have that third insight which is the insight in this moment suffering has been understood so whatever distress stress discomfort, confusion, or any particular flavor of dukkha, of suffering, that is present, in this moment it has been understood, which means that the mind or heart is clear and relaxed. It's balanced with the subtle or not so subtle suffering that's present. In a way, that's our homework, and for the next week especially, every time like I was just feeling a little pain in my tailbone you know now if I had been practicing before I adjusted my posture I would have just taken a moment to tune into the physical pain to tune into the part of the mind that doesn't like the physical pain and to recognize there is suffering it's relevant it should be understood and then with enough patience the simple practice of connecting and sustaining this balanced attention with it, there would be the insight it has been understood. There's nothing here in this experience that hasn't isn't being open to. It's like full and complete digestion of the experience. We're not negotiating with the pain in the tailbone. You know, it's like an open-hearted, bright interested presence, letting the experience show its colors. Undefended heart. And then we then we have that third insight. This is bit, this has been understood. And it sets us up, and we'll do this in the following weeks where we talk about the second noble truth, which is we don't really understand how it is that suffering arises unless we've opened to it completely. Because the cause of suffering, the cause of stress is embedded in, its, in the experience itself. So if we're not completely raw, clear, undefended with it, we'll never understand the cause. If we don't understand the cause, there's no abandoning the cause. It's not about like wanting to abandon the cause of suffering. We already want to abandon the cause. Anybody in this room not want to abandon the cause of suffering? What keeps us suffering is we don't understand the cause. And we don't understand the cause because we haven't opened to it completely. Thinking we know the cause of suffering is suffering, right? Because I know what the cause is. You guys are the cause of my suffering. Or the world is the cause. We always externalize the cause of suffering. And even if we think we're the cause, it's just some aspect of ourself we've externalized. You know, my upbringing, or my bad body, or the genetics that I have, or do you know what I mean? It's always externalized. We're never seeing exactly what the mind is doing in this moment, how the mind is viewing or understanding as the cause. We never see that because we've never taken the time, we've never organized our life or practice in this manner of understanding dukkha. It just seems so appropriate to run or to deny dukkha suffering, even though it, if we ask yourself it doesn't work. Like Going back to what I said earlier, I mean, imagine maybe you have a niece or a nephew or even a son or daughter or grandchild or just a younger person that you're a mentor of. And let's say they came to you, some 18-year-old, 17-year-old, a really bright young person comes to you and says, seems like there's a lot of suffering, a lot of stress, a lot of disorientation and confusion in life. And I'm really interested and a happiness that's not just temporary not just a you know short-term high so please tell me you know what do you know about lasting happiness what would we say to that person you know, what wisdom do we have to convey to somebody that asks us about real stable Happiness, happiness that's not dependent on things that change like happiness from our good relationship or happiness from having money What would we say? Because this is really the Buddha's answer to that question, you know out of compassion having understood deeply suffering, its cause, its cessation, and the way, right? That's that medical diagnosis again. The Buddha outlined the expression, like, what's the problem that we're trying to solve? Oh, yeah, the heart hurts. You know, it's suffering. The heart hurts. And then, of course, we'd want to point out, well, what's the cause? What's the underlying cause of the heart hurting? You know, intellectually, we say, well, it's attachment. It's clinging. And then the cure is the cessation of that very same clinging or craving as I read when I was reading that setting the Dhamma Emotion talk that the Buddha gave where he says exactly that it's the abandonment of that very craving that is the cessation is Nibbana is freedom and then the healing path so now we understand that there is a cure for the disease, the dis-ease of our hearts, there is a cure, and so what's the path that leads to that cure? And the Buddha talks about being mindful. Being mindful of one's view, being mindful of one's activity in the world, and being mindful of how the mind is itself. These are the three aspects of the Eightfold Path. Wisdom, ethical conduct, And mental training, basically, is how you divide up the Eightfold Path in a simple way, in a three-part category. So we have this medical diagnosis. And now we have to transform our relationship to pain and difficulty. And instead of seeing it as an inconvenience when it's mild, or as a betrayal when it's not so mild, right, we feel betrayed by life when we're like I have a serious loss and and if we could we would like to beat up life right or whatever we think the cause is of that deep pain there's often a feeling of betrayal and a feeling like if we could kick the crap out of it that somehow that would be satisfying as crazy as it sounds now saying it out loud but isn't that often how we feel Or we want to kick the crap out of ourselves for having been beaten up by life or feeling responsible for the mess that we are feeling, the the heaviness that we're feeling. So how do we transform our relationship to suffering, to pain? This is what Sylvia Borstein, she's a well-known Buddhist teacher one of the founding teachers of the Spirit Rock Meditation Center in Northern California, just outside of San Francisco, and a wonderful author as well. She says, The First Noble Truth declares unflinchingly, straight out, that pain is inherent in life itself just because everything is changing. Because of the nature of uncertainty, there is suffering. Right? She goes on and says, the second double Truth explains that suffering is what happens when we struggle with whatever our life experience is, rather than accepting and opening to our experience with wise and compassionate response. From this point of view, there is a big difference between pain and suffering. Pain is inevitable. Lives come with pain. Suffering is not inevitable. If suffering is what happens when we struggle with our experience, if suffering is what happens when we struggle with our experience because of our inability to accept it, then suffering is an optional extra. I misunderstood this when I started my practice and believed if I meditated hard enough, I would be finished with all pain. That turned out to be a big mistake. I was disappointed when I discovered the error and embarrassed that I had been so naive. It's obvious we are not going to finish with pain in this lifetime. The Buddha said, everything dear to us causes pain. Those of us who have (coughs) chosen relational life have made the choice that pain is worth it. There's a very poignant uh, story from the time of the Buddha where one of his chief benefactors, uh, a woman, um, uh, was lamenting the loss of one of her grandchildren. She was a very wealthy, I think she might even be a queen, and she was lamenting the loss of one of her beloved grandkids. And uh, the Buddha basically said, uh, they gave her this teaching that everything dear to us causes pain. But before he said that to her, he he asked her, Would you like to have more grandchildren? And she said, yes. And uh, and I think he said something like, Well, imagine you had as many grandchildren as there are people in this town. You know, she did. She was very happy with that thought, you know, just all those wonderful beings she could love and take care of. She was quite wealthy, of course. And then the Buddhist asked her, By the way, about how many people die in this town every day? And she said, oh, you know, 10, 15, 20. It was a big city. And the Buddha said, oh, so if you had this many grandchildren, you know, there would be many dying all the time. And then he gave her this teaching that when something's dear to us, everything dear to us causes pain. Now, the Buddha's not teaching that we shouldn't have anything dear to us. The Buddha is teaching that we need to transform our understanding of pain, not avoid pain. Avoiding pain is that ascetic practice that the Buddha rejected. Asceticism is about avoiding pain by avoiding life. Okay, I won't get married. I won't have kids. You know, I'll pretend I'm not a sexual being. I'll pretend I don't need to feed this body, or at least not feed it much. You know, I'll pretend I'm not feeling the cold temperature. So this rejection of life, it's like saying, well, you know, if only I weren't alive, then I'd be happy. That's why it's really useful in the Buddhist cosmology, you know, you don't get out of life by killing yourself. You just end up in life again, right? One life leads to another life. As long as there's ignorance, confusion, life begets life. When life ends, that mind stream just continues on in another body. No, I'm not asking you to believe that. I don't think it's useful to believe it. But just to stay open to that, you know, there is no easy out. So let's resolve this. Let's bring all of our intelligence, all of our wisdom to this problem of suffering. Not a simplistic answer Well, I'll just consume as much as I possibly can and have, you know, I know it's temporary pleasure, but at least it's some pleasure. Or forget life. It doesn't really deliver the goods. I'm rejecting it. So we can understand that that's not it. So going back to that story, or that uh, reflection, like if a young person came to us and asked us about happiness, the way to happiness, lasting happiness, Do we have any confidence that, although there is pain in life, unavoidably there is pain in life, honey, suffering is optional? I mean, this is a good reflection for us. Do we have enough confidence to at least explore whether that's possible? You know, that we can embrace the pain, we don't have to negotiate with the pain, manipulate the pain, We can actually embrace this part of life. There's joy and there's sorrow. There's gain and there's loss. Sometimes people love us. Sometimes people don't like us at all. We can actually embrace this aspect of life. Otherwise, we spend our whole life trying to pretend or make it different than it is. I mean, it's exhausting to have to have all of our friends like us all of the time in just the way we want to be liked. That is a setup for suffering, no doubt, or wanting the body to always be pleasant. It's like it's so easy to get obsessive about that. I mean, I consider myself relatively wise, and I see myself all the time being obsessive about being comfortable. You know, where does, where is comfort enough? I can always imagine being a little bit more comfortable. <laughs> And then it just doesn't end. It's like a hunger where we never feel like we're filled up. You could always have a little bit more. I had a really nice lunch today, really fun lunch with some people from the center, a lot of joy, you know. And then a couple hours later, it was like, I want more, you know. <laughs> and I was convinced I didn't have anything sweet. And then I realized, oh, there's that... Uh, Wonderful rice pudding. It was a, a Nepalese restaurant. You know, it's like, I was just convinced I needed dessert. <laughs> I'm still pretty sure I need dessert.
2: <laughs>
1: so, just to really get that in. And, and so, you know, maybe what we'd say to the young person is, uh, I mean, to be really honest, something like, well, you know, friend or honey, if I actually look at my life, it seems to me that I don't think there is, because mostly I spend my life pursuing things that I know aren't leading to lasting happiness, but just a temporary rush of pleasantness. And if I add up all the moments of my life, there weren't, th- you know, proportionally, there aren't that many moments I spent in pursuit of something. Of a path or some possibility of a happiness that's lasting and I spent I've spent a lot of time pursuing temporary pleasant experiences and getting away from temporary unpleasant experiences now if we said that out loud if we own that out loud we might just sort of take the person's hand and say something like How about you and I go on a search for lasting happiness? Why spend our lives in pursuit of something that's only temporary? Why not pursue something that might actually lead to lasting happiness? You know, we call this an unconditioned happiness. not a happiness based on something that's conditional, that comes and goes, but a happiness that's inherent. So that gives us a real clue of where we're going to look. right? If we're looking for a happiness that's inherent, we're probably not going to go online <laughs> you know, or think we need a different relationship or fix the relationship we have. It doesn't mean that we're going to all of a sudden avoid turning the thermostats up or having a heart-to-heart conversation with our partner about how our relationship could be better, sharing some of our deeper needs. You know? I feel this, I'm experiencing this, really appreciate if this could happen. It's not like that is bad. It's bad. It becomes bad when we think that what we're going to get from it will be something that will make us happy forever. So we just want to be honest that we're just managing relative happiness in order to do the deeper work. So we do need to manage relative happiness. We need to turn the thermostat up. In the summer, in the winter, down in the summer, you know, we need to feed the body. We need, sometimes we actually seem to need a temporary distraction to laugh, to do something that sort of refreshes the mind. But we want to be really honest with ourselves that the best we can get from these temporary pleasant experiences, like a really wholesome relationship with somebody, a good friend or a good partner, The best we get is a sense of stability and strength in order to do this deeper, more subtle work of looking for a happiness that's not conditioned and basically following this path. When suffering, subtle or not so subtle, arises, we say, ah, my teacher, this is dukkha. It should be understood. It has been understood. These are three insights we have. Every moment we experience some difficulty, something stressful. And then there is a cause. This cause should be abandoned. It has been abandoned. This is what we'll talk about next week. Letting go isn't something we do. We don't let go of the cause. We understand suffering. That reveals that it's being caused right here in the mind heart right now seeing it and then seeing it we recognize this should be abandoned that insight seeing what needs to be abandoned leads to the abandoning of that attachment that identification that clinging it doesn't matter if we really want to let go of clinging in order for clinging to be let go of it has to be seen clearly and then it just happens this is an important insight, because otherwise we'll beat ourselves up. We'll see that we're causing our suffering. Keep thinking about this person and how angry, and I know it's not helping. You know, and we start to hate ourselves, for being so stupid to be regurgitating these angry thoughts over and over again. Why don't I just let go? Why don't I just stop? Well, if we really want to let go, we have to follow the lawful process. We have to open completely to the yuckiness, to the pain of the anger. And if we can really do that, we'll see what the mind is doing. It's getting attached or identified with the feeling, the experience of anger. That's the only thing that needs to be abandoned. And that abandoning happens when it's seen. If it's not seen, it won't happen. When it is seen, it it cannot not happen. The letting go will happen. And when that happens... The heart will experience a moment of cessation. It will experience the mind or heart, whatever that is, free of suffering. Then we'll know for ourselves that we don't need our books. We don't need somebody sitting on a podium telling us about freedom or liberation. We'll have one moment of the heart not bound up, not entangled with suffering for a moment. And it will be the cause for faith to arise like, oh, The next time a young person asks us, we'll say, yes, there is a happiness that's not conditioned. There is an inherent happiness that can be uncovered in life. That's not about getting something, not about attaining something. It's here, waiting to be uncovered. And the other thing that comes from that moment of cessation is some clarity about the path. How to live in a way that supports more of that insight, the deepening of that insight, which is basically a path of mindfulness. But it's one thing to be told that we should be mindful, and it's another thing to see directly, intuitively, in our experience, that mindfulness is the way. Being mindful is the way. I'm telling you, if we had that insight deeply, we would be on fire with mindfulness. as like Just like we would like if someone told us You know, there's this, you know, 30-inch diameter vein of gold in Golden Valley. That's why they named it Golden Valley. And it's, you know, at this such-and-such a street. If you dig down for enough, it's just like solid gold powder, so it's easy to take. We would be over there. We would all walk out of the room, you know, get in our cars, maybe pick up a pair of gloves, and we'd head over there. And it's the same thing with this. Uh, When we really have a moment where the heart lets go of clean and we touch the natural available release of the heart and we have that intuition that, oh, this happens when clear seeing is happening, well, we would strike out in the direction of clear seeing. We would do whatever we could to cultivate more continuity of mindfulness, of clearly seeing the way that it is. Recognizing Dukkha, understanding it, seeing the cause, knowing that it needs to be abandoned, seeing that it is being abandoned, experiencing the cessation, having more clarity about the path, the way of living, and on and on like that. And that's what we'll be talking about the next few weeks, but I'll leave it here so we have some time to check in with each other. So tonight we cover the first double truth. Our practice is just to unpack that at home. And just remember these three insights. There is stress, it should be understood, it has been understood. That's just our work, to see it as a teacher. So it would be nice to hear from people. Maybe you've had moments of relating to stress or difficulty in this way or questions about the talk. What comes to mind? Casey. Yeah, you know,
3: to me it seems like if I get honest you know, with myself about stress.
1: Can you hear Casey over there?
3: And, you know, I look at the world around me, people around me, you know, people who are relatively you know, unstressed out. I, I do, I, I see quite a bit of it, you know. And, I think it's partly due to you know having a daily practice and really sensitizing myself to, to things, but I think that I've always, known it and always seen it. You know, I, I think we all pick up on it all the time. You know, our reactions are just fast for us to really notice. So we're, we're all feeling all well. the.
1: Yeah, when we let it in, it breaks our heart, which is another thing, another reason we keep up our defenses. So I think, I agree, I think we are all affected by our own suffering and the suffering around us, and whether we're conscious of it or not, it's having its effect. And then on top of that, either we're consciously letting it in, and it's breaking our heart in a good sense, or we're... Us unconsciously in denial, in which case it's just more suffering. So much of the suffering we intuit is the denial of suffering. I mean, this is the great, great irony that so much of the suffering in the world is our decision, the sort of our collective cultural decision to remain oblivious to suffering. To, to It's like a, a decision that denial and distraction is somehow functional, and that is such a painful decision that to have been made. That has been made. Thanks, Casey. Yes, Bruce. Yeah, I you was know, thinking tonight. I have uh, a stressful
2: professional state is very pleasant some things that need to be resolved. And as I was sitting here, I just had more clarity about how that part of my mind things, well when I get these resolved, you know, then I'll just be kind of happy, happy go out And then something else will come up and needs to be resolved. And and I was gonna go dance tonight, because I thought I'd just break it away from this. And then I thought, you know, I just want to sit with it. This is what I came to it. And so it's not like I'm all happy about this stuff, but I have it just went in in a deeper way that oh yeah, this is the you know I'm just allowing myself to, to be with life because life is going to continue to happen. And then also just sitting in this room with just so much gratitude in this community, and you know, I can just come here and be with others and show bright I am and uh, that I don't need to have any answers. Yeah. That's, mm-hmm.
0: you know,
1: Thank you, Spruce. The thoughts, Sharon's Yeah, Dave, and then you. Um,
0: Well, I recently moved to Chicago about four months ago, and I'm home visiting right now, and I was just thinking about how I struggle with the extremes and, uh, you know, thinking about how um, since I've moved, I live in this apartment building, and it's a huge building, and I'm about halfway up. And I struggle with, like, oh wow, the like people that live on the top, they really haven't made. You know? <laughs> and I oh, if I ever got a place at the top of the building, then I'd be happy. And then thinking, like, wow, this, you know, when I stop and look at how good it is right now, I totally missed the point. And even with, like, uh, I have a TV, and now they have these huge, you know, 3D TVs out. And thinking, like, wow, if I ever got the fifty five inch T V that that'd be pretty cool. And then, you know, oh well what if I got one in three D and then I could watch movies in three D and totally, you know, to the point where I'm really feeling heavy and almost compulsively wanting to go buy this huge T V that I don't even really want. And, you know, at the end of the day it's like I decide to wanna have a spine the small one. And then it's like I struggle with the other extreme of, like, I really just need to go off, sell all my possessions and become a monk, then I'll be happy. And it's really, those extremes for me are so hard because the middle path is, like, where I find the most equanimity and inner peace, but um, it's hard to be, you know, in this world of craving and desire but not, not be on either side of the extremes for me.
1: Yeah. And I think that's why it's actually useful to practice telling yourself a story. Just like we do it, you know, like you tell yourself a story about, oh, if only I became a monk, or if only I had the apartment on the 50th floor. So we can tell ourselves a story about this, too. Like, if only I can learn to respect suffering as a teacher and not as the bad guy. You know, if only I learn how to trust and embrace the experiences, the good and the bad, the pleasant and the unpleasant, and learn from both, things will start working better. I mean, Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, it's just a story, too. But it's a story with certain consequences. Just like the story, if only I had the apartment on the 50th floor, that's a story that has certain consequences. And you know, If we believe that story, it has consequences. This is you know, what we talk about here. It's also a story. But the consequences, I mean, you could, we should watch it for ourselves. Like, what are the consequences of telling ourselves this, this kind of story? Yeah, I don't know your name. Page. am Paige. Paige.
2: Um, you, you talk a lot about seeing things as they really are, like this mindfulness that just accepts things as they really are. And I guess I, I get it sometimes but sometimes I'm really suspicious of my own ability to see things the way they are because of the stories we tell, because of the projections that we have, because of, you know, the legitimacy of other people's perspectives. So, I don't know, I'm really a beginner. I'm just trying to, under, to understand the really basic concepts here. But, yeah.
0: But what, how do
2: we know how things really are? I'm, I'm just, I don't know
1: what... Yeah, no, no, it's a very good question. And that's why we practice. You know, we often practice with relatively speaking simple objects, like just the actual experience of the air coming in and touching the nostrils, right? And then going out, and the air touches the nostrils. But that's that's called clear seeing of touching, right? It's just touching. That's what's going on there. And the question: Can we bring that balanced mind where the mind is very alert? Now, that's not easy with something ordinary like breathing because we think, oh, it's ordinary. Why should I pay attention? So we're training to be very alert, very clear, and also not judging it, not fabricating it, not imagining the breathing process as such, but actually feeling the sensations of touching as the breath goes in and out. And it's not easy. Anybody who's tried mindfulness breathing knows it's not easy to remain to have that simple, clear, balanced attention for any length of time. But we train with something simple, walking practice, hearing practice. And we gain some momentum in what we would call clear seeing, and then we bring it on the road in our daily life as best we can, even though obviously um, mindfulness is going to be weakened quite a bit when we get around more provocative objects like seeing our friend or... Feeling shame, or you know, all the different experiences emotional, thought experiences, touch experiences they're just going to be more challenging to maintain clear seeing. But the first thing is we have to get a sense of what bare, clear seeing is versus what we could call like conceptual seeing, where we're, our seeing is really colored by our thoughts about things. And it's really, it's like a different kind of universe. When we have a moment of, of awareness of the breath as it actually is, it's like we've stepped into an altered state of consciousness. It really feels, looks different. Because when, we have mind, when we're mindful, then the whole sense of uh, subject to object begins to fall apart. And there's just breathing being known, just touching being known. And it's quite alive it's not boring at all it's only boring what is boring about mindfulness of breathing is observing our thought about breathing is boring right because the thought doesn't really change but when we're actually aware of the breath as it actually is then it's mindfulness of nature or mindfulness of Dhamma the way it is it's not boring at all it's quite alive and mysterious and uh, wild even but we're not often there we have to train the mind we have so much habit energy of being caught up in our thoughts about things that it takes persistence, and initially we have that persistence is going to come from faith based on somebody saying something to you, like now, you know, like maybe some confidence from our own study, you know, we've studied and the teachings just make a lot of logical sense, but we don't have our own experience to draw on initially, or maybe you did. Just sometimes people have sort of a, randomly bump into the experience like my wife when when she was in college having <clears throat> lunch at the cafe or breakfast at the cafeteria like her sophomore junior year somebody just mentioned to her she was having lunch with her or breakfast with a friend and the person just mentioned some hearing about meditation and about uh he just said something like uh yeah you're supposed to really be aware of the sensations like when you're drinking your juice it's like you're chewing it you know just Pointed her in that direction, and she just triggered some maybe ancient part of her mind that already knew this. And she just got interested in being mindful. And she kind of entered this altered way of being for days where she was just mindful and she was just in a different universe where uh, she was aware of everything and not caught up in her thoughts about everything. And you know, when you have an experience like that then your relationship to the practice shifts because you realize how much is being missed because of our being caught up in thoughts about things. If we do it so much we're not even aware we're doing it. It has to be real quick. You get the last word. Oh, wow. All right. Um, well, I
3: just, that, what you just said kind of interesting. Thanks for me. I've been thinking a lot about how um, it was last January and February that made a deeper investment in having a meditation practice and becoming a designer. Um, and I I really I definitely found myself after some of the time really investing in it that I was having more and more of those moments you described with self-compassion and, and unbinding and you know, of, of stress and suffering. And it was amazing. And it felt it, it was like you described, like this kind of like I've never known that this was even possible I, you know of been living in a way that isn't skillful, isn't fruitful. Um, but it was interesting that I was during a period of unemployment for myself. I had all this time. And like, I got rehired. And I was looking different parts of the country. And they gave me like a smartphone, which is like, a huge distraction in my life. And, 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 and now I find that those moments are less frequent. And, and I guess one thing that's been really interesting in um, the talking room tonight and also last week is I've been thinking a lot more about how now a struggle for me is that I'm like, craving being in that place again. And so when I practice, I'm I'm like practicing the way that like an athlete trains for
1: a game. Like I just gotta do it. I gotta clock. I gotta punch the clock so I can get back to that place. And and obviously that isn't fruitful either. But you know that. Yeah. Which is great. No, it's really great that you know that.
3: Yeah.
1: Because you may still do it, but you know it's not gonna work. Because craving isn't the cause for release. Non-craving is the cause for release. You know, seeing things clearly is the cause for release. Not wanting it. And you already know that. And it is a really great place to end, just uh, to hear your little Dharma talk about how it's unfolded for you. Yeah, thank you so much. It's really great. I think it's a cause for faith hearing stories like that. So let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Appreciating people's comments. Appreciating these ancient teachings. Appreciating all the women and men that did their practice over the centuries and shared what they've learned And being inspired to be Part of the causes and conditions supporting the continuation of these wise practical teachings so to develop these teachings realize what can be realized And to live a life of wisdom and compassion, skillfulness, to be a cause for happiness in the world. May this be so. And thanks again, everyone, for coming. Thanks to the folks who came early to clean. If anybody wants to join the Sunday...
0: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit